Welcome to the All About the Customer podcast brought to you by Influtive, where we talk with customer-obsessed people to uncover how you can be more customer-focused. I'm your host, Dan Kalmar. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Varney. Sarah is a CMO of Attentive, where she drives the end-to-end marketing strategy across the full customer lifecycle. Prior to Attentive, Sarah was the CMO of Twilio, where she was responsible for growing Twilio's community of developers while simultaneously bringing Twilio into the enterprise market. Sarah also spent 10 plus years at Salesforce as the SVP of product marketing, where she was responsible for the positioning and go-to-market strategy of SalesCloud, the world's leading sales platform. Prior to joining Salesforce, Sarah worked in mobile strategy at eNetworks. She holds a BS in Business Administration from Bucknell University and an MBA from the Anderson School of Management at UCLA. In this episode, Sarah and I dive into customer-centric messaging. Too often, messaging is developed behind closed doors without talking to our customers, or without the customer in mind at all, quite frankly. Sarah believes this is a big miss. Whether we're writing landing page copy, sales collateral, or product messaging, We need to put our customers at the heart of that and ideally actually speak with them about it to make sure we're on the right track. Sarah dives into why marketers tend to work in ivory towers, what happens when we don't talk directly to our customers, and her framework for how she works through messaging with customers. Sarah, welcome to the All About the Customer podcast. Amazing to have you here. Thanks for having me. So recently, I've been having a lot of guests on who were part of Influtive's Fearless 50 and Elite 18, and you were recently named as one of Influtive's Elite 18 customer-led CMOs. So first of all, congratulations on that. Very well deserved. Thank you. I am honored. I'm in very good company, so I appreciate the recognition for sure. So I was was going through videos that people did for, for those awards, and you know, there's certain ones that really stood out to me. And I was like, I want to have that person on the podcast because I I love something that they talked about. And for you, you had this idea that for marketers, a lot of us have this thing that we do, which is that we build, you know, things, content, programs, events, whatever it might be, messaging, whatever it might be in ivory towers. So I'd love to dive into what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been at uh, a number of, in, or I've been a part of a number of different marketing organizations, and I think there is a tendency to build things within the marketing team. And there's there's rationale because the more people you ask for input, that slows down your cycles. You're often on a tight timeline. You're trying to launch something new and exciting. You also are maybe not trusting that, like when you're getting something new in the market, like getting. Um, Feedback from other people might not necessarily be helpful because they can't see the future as much. I think there's like a um, a little bit of uh, cockiness that you might see in a, a marketing team that way. Uh, and so what happens is that marketing goes into the bunker, builds this message that they think is the greatest thing since sliced bread, and they're all excited about. And then when it gets out in the real world, it just doesn't land. It feels like it's disconnected from the real world and what like people, the, the buyer of the product actually deals with on a day-to-day basis. And it can be minor. It can be just the, in the, the words that someone uses that just feel a little bit off. Or it can be major and not really understanding the use case and like the day-to-day pains of the person. So I think it's super critical to, even though it might extend, uh, it might be painful, you might have to do some rework, it might take more time than you'd like. I think it's super critical to test your messaging, both with your field reps, um, but also really getting it in front of customers who are ultimately going to consume it. Hmm. 
and I'm sure it varies by person, by company, but do you have any theories on how much it comes down to the time just that, oh, if we add this step, it makes things longer versus the feeling that we just know better than our customers. We think we know what they want. Do you have any theories on the on the, the main reason why people do this? Yeah. I mean, I think it just, it totally depends on the company and where they sit versus the competition, how established of a category it is. Are you really blazing a trail that no one could really like think about how to message around? Uh, I always go back to the Henry Ford quote. He said, you know, if you went and asked, you know, someone in the early 1900s, what kind of uh, transportation vehicle they would want, they'd say they wanted a faster horse. And so, you know, I think it's all, are you Henry Ford, like blazing a trail for this brand new category? Well, sure. It is going to be hard to get like very tangible feedback about uh, something that people have never seen before. But if you are uh, coming into a category that is, you know, more established and coming at it at a new, from a new way, I think you absolutely you know, need to get that customer feedback to make sure that what you're saying is really resonant with how they think about the world and um, that it's not just um, serving your own company's kind of desires and really thinking about that true kind of customer pain point. When we look at incredibly innovative companies, they give customers things they didn't know they needed. People probably just thought they needed a faster horse, but Ford gave them a car. We all thought that physical keyboards were the best, but then Apple gave us the iPhone. But to Sarah's point, that doesn't mean we don't listen to our customers. To give your customers something they didn't know they needed, you first have to know what they need. Whether hearing directly from our customers, we can never know if what we're building is something they didn't even know they needed or just something they didn't need. I was interested to hear Sarah's take on what this looks like when our messaging work happens from that ivory tower. I think you get content that is uh, just less powerful. It is um, said in more you know, generic terms. It's less practical. It's less relevant. Uh, and it's, at the end of the day, the most important thing is it's less credible. Um, you know, people are not going to believe your you know, vision for the future if it doesn't feel like what they're actually, the pain they're actually encountering on a, a day-to-day basis. Uh, and I also think it's super critical. Like I've, I've worked with uh, people on my team, especially in the, in the content world and said, Hey, this is a great report. Lots of great data here, but where are the customer examples? Like customer examples really bring it to life. Uh, they also, they provide that validation. Uh, and generally your prospects or customers want to hear, I, I hate to say it, it's hard to hear sometimes as a marketer, but they would much rather hear from a peer that, or and in a role that looks much more like theirs than most likely someone on your marketing team. Uh, and so I think that that's, you kind of have to put your ego aside in that situation and think about like, how can I augment this great work that the team's already done with those real world examples that really, you know, take theory and put it into practice. And, and that's really interesting. And, and I don't know, maybe this is or isn't how you're thinking about it, but I would imagine doing that serves two purposes. One, and what I mean here is going to your team and saying, where are the customer examples? So I think one, you're right. It, it allows you to tap into the voice of the customer, which I very much agree with you that is more impactful than what we are going to say as marketers. It, it's always better to hear from the customers than from us. So it's, it's allowing you to tap into that. But the other side of it is it's also probably a bit of a validation check for you when you're talking to your team and, and it's a way for you to make sure that they actually have reached out to customers or at least vetted this in some way. It, it, do you think about it having those two purposes or is that just a happy accident? Um, I 
mean, I do, I always, you know, my, when we're getting close to shipping something, I always say like, have we validated with this, this with customers? Have you run this by sales? Is this something that they think is actually going to land? Is it in line with the conversations that they're um, having? I always try to make sure that's part of our work back schedule so that we don't forget it. I um, definitely encourage my employees, wherever they sit in the org, to go to events, to listen to Gong. In a perfect world, I want, I would love for everyone on my team to be able to have the opportunity to go present at a conference or a, or a roadshow event or a dinner or whatever it is, but have a live audience of people where you can see nodding heads or you can see people going right to their phone because they're bored. Um, because I think there's no better feedback mechanism than that, like in real life context. I think it's super hard in all different parts of work these days to really know how your message is landing because you're presenting on Zoom and, you know, in a large setting, you're not even seeing faces or in, or people have, you know, shut off their video and like, you just don't have that, that affirmation. I was actually listening to a podcast. I listened to David Spade and um, Dana Carvey's podcast sometimes. And he was talking about how he had to step in for Jimmy Kimmel during COVID. And, you know, comedians are like the, like, like most extreme example of needing that validation from the audience to know if you know things are landing. Like if they're not laughing, it wasn't a good joke. And he was just saying it was just so painful to be like, you know, normally when you'd go do like an opening uh, monologue, you'd have the audience to, uh, you know, root you along or whatever. And he's just like, please, he was just basically like to the cameraman, please just laugh, do something. Cause this is going to be, you know, I, I just like, I need that energy to kind of feed off of it. And, um, so, you know, coming back to our world, like, I just think it's so, there's no replacement for getting in front of a live audience and, and really um, watching that body language. You will know in 30 seconds if you're, you know, or whatever, you'll know in certain parts of the presentation if you're hitting it out of the park or you're really losing people and, and you know, a little bit too detached from what really makes them tick. Sarah makes an interesting analogy here with stand-up comedy. And funny enough, we did an episode on what marketers can learn from improv comedy. That's episode 22 with Lauren Turner. But back to this stand-up analogy for a second. How stand-up tends to work is that you first start off by writing a joke on your own. You have this idea and you try to craft it into something usable. And then you workshop it. You try it out with some test audiences and keep refining it based on that feedback. No comedian is writing a joke and doing it for the first time on their HBO special. But that's what we're often doing in marketing. We write something, maybe at best workshopping it internally, and then think it's ready for prime time without testing it on our audience. But really what we should be doing is refining this messaging over and over again by listening to and talking to our customers. Sarah seems to agree. I think if, if time allows, you should bring them along in multiple parts of the journey. I think you should you know, bring them on early to say like, hey, here's how, I'm think here's how I'm seeing the world. Are we seeing the same game? Do you like agree with the way that I'm assessing your, uh, your situation? And then, um, and do that not just with one customer. Again, if time allows, do it with a couple. And I highly advise kind of having some people in your like wheelhouse that you can always reach out to for like quick feedback. You know, then once it's a little bit more baked and you're getting pretty close to launch, I think it's great to like to say it in a way of like, "Hey, thank you for all your great feedback. Wanted to show you where this is ended up. I'd love any last minute like details you have. Like, I, I tried to incorporate all the things you said, like X thing and Y thing, and 
you know, focus on ROI or whatever the things were. Um, would love to get any last minute feedback. You think just really want to make sure this is awesome. And I want it to go from a, you know, A to an A plus and see if they have any fine tuning. So because at some point you can go market the, the challenge as a marketer and the joy of being a marketer is that you can fiddle with these things forever. And it's a subjective space. And at some point you've got to ship the thing and get it out, let it out into the world. And so I think like you want to, but you also want to acknowledge and uh, acknowledge the feedback that you got from these customers, especially if they're like your MVP people and show that you've taken it to heart. Uh, But at some point you've got to kind of close it off and move on too. And I think it's just, uh, it takes some time to recognize when the right point is to do that. So I'd actually love to go even deeper into what this tactically tends to look like with your team, with with what you generally recommend for best practices, however you want to approach this. But if you're, you know, I don't know, let's say you're coming up with, you know, new landing page copy, what does it look like early on? Like is your team or whoever's working on it first, like having this like session where they're trying to figure out what some bare bones are and then they're going to customers and like what are examples of how you reach out to customers. You mentioned events, you could probably have customer advisory boards. Like what are the early stages of this process look like? And then we can just kind of keep going on. It, it it depends generally on how much consensus you have kind of coming into it. So let's say you're launching a new product and everyone is generally on board with the value prop of that product. Like you've got like three to four benefits you want to call out if it's like, I don't know, deliverability or, uh, you know, it, it uh, is makes people, your, your buyers highly productive or whatever those kind of three to four benefits you, you are, you have, uh, maybe you come into that and you generally have agreement on what those four things are. I think you have to do that kind of initial, Hey, here's the, here's what I've been hearing from my kind of early interviews with the field and what I'm hearing from product as like what we think these four benefits are and get the right stakeholders in the room. Maybe there's, and, and keep it contained. Like I would say like no more than like five people and say, Hey, here's what I've been, and come in with your research, right? Here's what I've been hearing from the field. Here's what I've been hearing from product. Here's what I think are the like three to four benefits that, you know, we are rallying around, uh, get feedback from the room. They, uh, they might say, Oh, you know, I think it's totally wrong. Like I think, um, two of these are good. Two of these are BS, whatever. Or they might say, yeah, generally I like these four. I would tweak the language here and there. You know, I, I think like starting with a, a smaller chunk, like just get the high level positioning of something ready first, then build your pitch deck after. And some people have different approaches to this, but I think like nailing the core differentiators and the headline of the product uh, are where you should spend your energy first. And then you can, you know, think through the lead in to that and the like customer success that you'd show after. This is how I do it. Uh, so, all right. You, you, so you build the consensus around the value props. And, and you can do all this all together, but you might chunk it out. And then like, there might be more debate about what the product name is and what the like subhead of that is, you know, that might take more iterations. You might not solve that in that first meeting. And so you say, okay, here's, you know, a headline, here's a subhead. Um, what do you guys think? Oh, we hate it. Or hey, blah, 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 this is what it reminds me of this or blah, 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 blah. And you might have to go back, you know, this is kind of, this can be the painful part of product marketing and this can be the painful part of marketing in general you know, then you kind of get into ideation mode and you have to say, all right, here is, here's, okay, what I heard that you guys really wanted to come through in the headline is something more around performance or something more around scale. 
Here are 10 options that really lean into scale. Here are 10 options that lean into performance or any of these resonating. Let's, let's cross ones off that totally don't and like pull down that list um, till, till you get to a good place. But again, to my earlier point, you could do this forever. You can go on and on and on and on and on and like never ship anything. And so I think it's really important to, to create forcing functions, whether that's an event that you have, whether that's an interview that you're, that's coming up, whether it's a sales kickoff, you have to, as a marketer, artificially um, create these forcing functions and dates. Um, that's why user conferences are great. It's an expensive way to drive, like, it's a pretty expensive way to drive, like, new messaging, content positioning, but it absolutely is, like, do or die. Yeah, but I, I can't emphasize that enough. Like, it's, of course, it's about collecting feedback and building the best product, but at some point, um, you have to draw the line as to, like, when it's showtime. And and are you thinking about trying to call this down before you show customers to make sure that they're not overwhelmed by options? Like at, like at what point are you, you know, done the debate with your team and bringing it to a customer? You um, want to come to customers with a list that you have pretty solid conviction on. And you should, you know, I, that's why I think, even though it doesn't always play out this way, I think really focusing on that value prop first is helpful because it can can guide like what that overarching message should be. Uh, and you won't get some crazy far out answer from a customer that's divorced from, you know, if they know that this is like the, the heart of what this product does, you're not going to get some crazy answer out of left field because it's, you know, those should be kind of the guiding principles. And, uh, but I think you want to come in with an informed opinion, not just like, a, oh, this is what we thought about in the ivory tower so that you don't come across as like, we have no idea what we're doing here. Uh, and also though, you're also um, giving them suggestions that you know the company's generally comfortable with too. So you're not wasting the customer's time and, and you know, they don't feel like you're not listening to them. And so when you're showing them these headlines, these value props, like whatever it might be, what are the types of questions that you're asking them to make sure that this is resonating with them and that they're not just, you know, blowing smoke up your butt? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways you can run um, surveys and focus groups like this. One of the most effective ways that I've seen people do it is to show the three to four things that the product does and just blind ask, okay, what would you name this thing? And just see what they come up with. It's, uh, it runs a little counter to what I just said, but I do think like, it's just interesting to, you know, hopefully given the setup, things are going to be in the general same zip code of the, ultimately the suggestion that you show. So you do that first and then you say, okay, well, here's four ideas that we've come up with. Of these, which ones do you like or prioritize them one to four? What resonates with you the most? What resonates with you the least? And then, you know, you can kind of contrast those two sets of responses to see like, all right, are we in striking distance or do we need to 100% scrap everything and go back to the drawing board? And so when you're, when you're focus grouping this, is there a, an ideal number of people that you know, of customers that you're showing this to? I would imagine you don't want to do just one, but showing it to 100 customers is, is probably too many. Is, is there like a sweet spot in your mind? It somewhat depends on how... Uh, engage the audiences. I don't think you. I don't think you'd want more than like eight to ten people if you're focus grouping. And honestly, you could do some great work with three diverse customers that are very engaged. So if you're, you know, resource constrained, but you have three amazing customers that you know kind of 
cover 80% of your customer base, uh, that could be fine too. I think the engagement is the key factor more so than volume in some ways. And are you, are you looking for a lot of, when you're doing this in person or, or if it's just, you know, over zoom or something like that, but video is on, are there as many, uh, nonverbal cues as verbal cues that you're looking at? Like you mentioned, you know, people are immediately looking down and on their phones. Like, are, are you really trying to balance what they're saying with what their body language is as well? I want to give some people some grace because Zoom is just, I struggle like paying attention for, I'm on calls from eight to five every day. And, you know, that's hard to like keep a hundred percent focused. And, you know, I just think like our brains have learned to work in, in different ways, some ways on Zoom. I do think in person though, like there's no hiding from it. It's pretty obvious, like who's um, active and who's not. But, you know, I think too, there is the kind of old school, like, the tricks that I know when, when I went to business school, there was the like cold calling and the the role that the facilitator would play to make sure everyone was paying attention and, and staying on task. And I think we shy away from that a little bit now. Uh, and I don't, I think we should, it's not that you want to like put people on the spot or make them feel uncomfortable, but like, uh, I think we've gotten a little bit lax about like holding standards and like, Hey, I really want to, you know, I, again, these guys are spending time with you. You want to be careful about how you word it, but like, Hey, I'm going to, we're going to do this for 30 minutes. I know it's tough to do sessions like this on zoom, but if you can please just give me your full attention, I'll like get through this as quickly as I can. And I really appreciate your feedback and, you know, want to make the most of it. Something like that, where like people know that you're watching if they're like slacking away or, you know, doing whatever, just to set the tone at the beginning, I think is important. I don't know. I I uh, have been in a couple of meetings lately where I think people are, are starting to do that more and I appreciate it. It's like, you're right. It's a good reminder. Like your time's valuable. I shouldn't be, you know, looking at seven different screens at once. Yeah. And so when you're talking to these customers and you're getting not great feedback, like say they're, they're just not uh, a fan of the value props, the messaging, whatever it might be, how do you then try to balance is this a Henry Ford type situation where they're just they're just wrong? They're, they would just ask for a faster horse versus we are the ones who are wrong here. Like, how do you think about trying to balance making sure that they're, you know, actually looking for the right things versus just like, hey, we actually just did this in an ivory tower and this is perfect feedback. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just like trying to paraphrase back what they're saying to make sure that you're hearing them the right way. And then, uh, you know, so hey, uh, Susie customer, like what I'm hearing from you generally is that what our solution really delivers is, or what you value about our solution uh, is that we're really precise in our targeting and you don't care as much that um, we save time in pulling reports or whatever, like that, that the first one resonates with you more. Is that what, I, am I hearing that correctly? I think that that's a good way to, to start. And she might say, no, I actually meant this. I, I meant blah, 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 blah. Or yes, that's generally what I'm saying. And I say, okay, uh, well, what if we took the this language out of it? Or what if um, the product did this other thing that I didn't maybe explain well in the lead up to it? Like, would that change your mind? No, I still think that, da, da, da. okay, well, all right, clearly we've got some work to do. We're going to go back to the you know marketing workshop and um, you know figure out like, how we reposition this. I think it's just like making sure that you're clear on what they're saying and you're recognizing the patterns correctly without being like snarky or rude about it. Like 
asking the question of, well, if we did tweak X, Y, and Z, would that change your perception? I think that that's completely fair game and you're going to get good insight in going that route. And do you feel like having this eight to 10 you know, number of people gets you away from that situation where you overreact to small amounts of feedback? Because if you're just asking one person, maybe they just don't have good feedback and maybe they're just going to lead you astray. Like, do you feel like that's how you get around that is by having this sweet spot of not too many people, but more than just one or two people? It's interesting. I think you get different feed, much different feedback if you meet with people one-to-one versus a group and, and both can be good. Uh, I think when you're meeting one-to-one, you're going to get, you're going to get probably more honest and candid feedback. People are going to feel more comfortable. They're just, you know, especially if you have a rapport with them, they're going to like not be afraid to say their kind of gut reaction to things. I think when people get in a group setting, they're a little bit nervous. Am I saying the right thing? Am I like, do I sound smart? Do I like sound like I know what I'm talking about? And then I also think there's a group mentality that can be an issue where you get some loud people in a focus group and everyone kind of rally. Oh yeah, I totally agree with, you know, Billy Bob or Susie about whatever. Um, and then, you know, you get this kind of polarized group that uh, may or may not be reflective of, of your broader customer base. So, but I do think the benefits of a group too, is that people might bring up things that lead to other points or other pieces of feedback that someone else was not thinking about. And so um, I think it's good to try a mix of, of both, like, and to kind of get the one-off feedback in a more comfortable setting um, and then, you know, do the bigger group and see how that dynamic changes or if it stays the same, then, you know, you're really kind of nailing it in all different settings. Hmm. It's like a psychology. I mean, I'm sure there's like, I'm, I'm probably not the uh, authority here. I'm sure there's like many different write-ups about the psychology of focus groups. And I bet it's really interesting actually, but that's just my kind of my own experience. At at the very least, you're probably more of the expert between the two of us. So we'll go with what you say (laughs) on this. I feel like that's where we'll defer on this. And how do you think about how to find the customers to do this? I mean, I would imagine if you already have an existing advocacy or community program, that's something that's probably really easy to tap into. Like, how do you tend to go about finding customers to give feedback and join focus groups and join customer advisory boards? I uh, I, I would say largely I, re- I rely on my field team. I um, have a couple, and it, there's even like advocates within Attentive that I know will be like great about getting back to me and like, like I have someone on our client strategy team here who's always got like three names to give me of people to go talk to. And so I'll often go to them to, to get started. I think you can go on social and see, all right, who's active in our community, who's really talking about our landscape, who seems to be um, engaged. And they might be negatively engaged, honestly. Those might be even more powerful people to talk to um, to figure out why they have negative sentiment about your product. You have to be careful, though, because you can poke the bear and then they'll be like, ah, you know, this company reached out to me and is trying to, like, smooth me over. You know, people are just have no sort of sensor sometimes when it comes to Twitter and social media and, you know, just want to make a bigger splash than anything else. So I think you've got to be careful on on your outreach. It just always should come from a good place. Like, it shouldn't come from any other, like, trying to, you know, smooth things over or totally change their mind. You have to be... Um, you have to realize that they might be set in their position. Uh, then I think too, it, it still is going through the field largely, but like, I think people who have presented for you at events, um, people who have offered to do any sort of work with the press, like those are people that are generally like psyched about what you're doing and, um, probably have thought 
a good amount about what you're doing. And so, you know, they should be able to, to have good feedback. I do think like you do have to be careful that you're not just only talking to people to the converted all the time. Um, I think you need to make sure that you're also talking to people who uh, have issues with your product and, or are not like completely a believer yet um, because that's a super important audience too. Uh, and you want to make sure that you're not just um, talking to people that are only going to say positive things because those might not be helpful at the end of the day. Yeah. And one thing that you mentioned kind of in passing was, you know, having your team go to events, having them listen to gong calls. Are these things that are predecessors to all of this? Is this just kind of how you want people to stay in tune with the customer and make sure they're not developing things completely in ivory towers. And then you're actually going to people to have these conversations. Like, is that, is that how you think about talking in events, listening to gong calls? I don't think one necessarily needs to come before the other. I think it's just, it's a matter of, you know, if you were an IC just starting out in a marketing team, you might not have an opportunity to go present on stage, for example, like in the extreme case, I think that's the best way to kind of get real time unbiased feedback. Uh, so, you know, an easy lower lift way to do that or to hear what the words that customers are using or hear how a pitch is resonating between a salesperson and a prospect, you know, you can go on Gong, search for a keyword that you're looking for. Let's say it's AI, go search for AI on Gong and go listen to, you know, three calls without leaving your desk. And, you know, that can be super helpful and in some ways, maybe even more helpful than, than actually having to go travel to, to something live. Um, so that's why I just say it as an option. I don't think it has to be like sequential, but I do also think like the field can be an intermediary step. If you have trouble getting direct access, like just getting on the phone with some of your trusted salespeople or client strategy people, um, can also be a great solve if you really want to talk to someone and have a conversation. Yeah. And so, so we, you talked about, you know, sales pitches and, this is something we talked about in a previous conversation that I thought was really interesting that you know, a lot of times marketers feel like we need to have this single unified messaging that everybody needs to talk about everything the exact same way. Like our salespeople, our marketing you know, people, our customers better all use the exact same language and you don't believe that is the case. I'd I love to learn why you don't think it should be like that. I've been in many different roles where we've tried to make the message that we're sharing with the press and analysts and our like broader category level positioning match up word for word with what you're, you expect a salesperson to say across the table from a customer. And I just don't think that's reality. And, you know, I can think of an example in my past, like where we were largely selling to directors, senior directors and our sales team generally wanted to stay pretty close to what was available today. And so that audience really was motivated by performance metrics. They cared about how the solution was going to perform, what the ROI was, what the revenue was they were going to expect from it. And that messaging around that in that vein was great for them. And, you know, would we would close business all day using messaging like that. But, you know, ultimately this business wanted to get higher and higher up in organizations and not just sell to managers and senior directors or directors and senior directors, but sell to the C-suite and the C-suite. Uh, and for the buyer that we cared about cares about performance to a certain extent, but that's not the only thing they care about. And so in that regard, they, the company needed a more elevated message that was more about the end customer experience than that marketers or that person's uh, particular performance uh, and so, you know, we had to 
think about, all right, what's that message that we would share with uh, the press or the analysts that's more long-term in our vision, that is uh, more uh, at a kind of customer benefit level and end user benefit level than um, what we're, you know, in reality delivering today. And I think everyone needs to be comfortable with that because you have to show the market what you're doing. You have to show your future vision and, um, and you have to skate to where the puck is going. You can't just always be messaging um, what you have to sell on the truck today. And so I've spent a lot of time, not just at that organization I'm talking about, but at, at several different places to kind of make people feel comfortable with. It's okay. Like at you know, like Salesforce, for example, we would say we're a customer success platform. And that was important because we weren't just selling to salespeople anymore. We were selling to customer support. We were selling to marketing departments. And so we had to have a more elevated message. We couldn't just say we're the world's best Salesforce automation product. But I was not, I was no fool and thinking that like, you know, our top AEs were going into whatever, Bank of America or uh, what's another good Salesforce customer, you name it. And saying, like, hey, I want to talk to you about buying a customer success platform today. That was just not the words that were going to come out of their mouths. And so I just think that there's a time and a purpose for each level of message. And uh, as marketers, you just need to recognize when the right time, when to use the right message for who. And so in, in those instances, are you coming up with a vision for something and then trying to adapt it to all these different personas? Or are you just coming up with this vision and, and letting those individual teams tweak it to their needs? Like, are you, are you still having that level of control or are you just kind of letting people play off of your framework? It depends on the size of the company. I think in general, at a bigger company, I think you do want to still have control because your sales team and what they're saying is a huge lever. And the more um, consolidation you have around that, it's just, it's, you're going to have better results and outcomes in my opinion. But I think like, and I only say it's less important in a smaller organization because you might not have the bandwidth to fully do it. But I still, if you do have the bandwidth, I think it's important at any type of company to also say, all right, this is what we're going to say to an analyst, but this is what, uh, you know, you would probably balance it with in real world speak to the person you're sitting across the table from, you know, trying to solve a more, um, a, a problem that's a quarter or two out versus a year or 18 months out. So the wrap up question that I asked everyone, if you could give our listeners at home one piece of advice to be more customer centric, what would it be? It's obvious in some ways, but I just think like setting a basic goal about getting in front of customers monthly. So no matter where you are, if it's your first role in marketing or you're running a large marketing team, uh, I think just setting a, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to connect with three customers a month and holding yourself accountable, setting a time in your calendar at, you know, the last day of the month, just to check in on how you did and, and constantly try to get better. Um, and that could be a real life interview that you do on the phone or on zoom that could be listening to a gong call. Um, that could be dialing into a conference where one of your customers is speaking. I don't really care what level it is. I think you'll learn things. Um, from all different types of formats, but just setting a basic goal for yourself around interacting with customers monthly and really sticking to it is going to make all of your content that much better. And and as a people leader, like, do you believe that that's something that should also come from managers and, and on up is like having their teams, you know, set this goal of like meeting a certain number of, of people per month? Or do you feel like it just should come from those individual people to want to do this? 
of course, it'd be great if it was uh, mutually uh, desired. But, you know, I think what managers can do is make sure that their uh, their employees know that they are empowered to take the time to do it. Uh, so, you know, I think people and automatic excuses like, oh, I wish I had time to do that. But my day to day job is just like taking up so much time. I have all these deliverables. I have all these stakeholders. I think what a manager can do if they really want to enforce this on their team is say, hey, every Friday, I want you to block, you know, one o'clock to three o'clock. And I just want that to be customer time. And I want you to be doing either customer research online or setting up a call or listening to Gong. And that you should feel empowered to block that time and not worry about your other deliverables. And I think that can really help too, because people just are nervous to get off the treadmill for a little bit and take some time to think. Sarah, thanks so much for diving into all of this. I, I learned so much. Really appreciate having you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. The Ivory Tower, a place where every idea is perfect, but only in theory. I genuinely believe so much of our solitary work comes from just thinking we know best. How often do you go on a company's landing page and you have no idea what that company does? That was the result of the marketing team not talking to customers. And I get it, workshopping our ideas with customers adds another step. But this doesn't have to be that difficult. Most companies have a customer community or customer advisory board. Or even if it's not an official customer advisory board, you probably have at least some go-to customers who are always willing to give you candid feedback. Maybe you don't want to run every single line of messaging through your customers. But what about the important ones? What about your value props, your key go-to-market messaging, your product names? Like Sarah said, when time and bandwidth allows, you're hopefully continually workshopping with your customers. You're speaking with them at events and hopping on account calls to understand their work lives and using that as a foundation. Then you're running early versions of messaging by them to ensure you're on the right track. Our customers often aren't marketers or wordsmiths, but they are our target audience. And actually, they're the best version of our target audience. They're our target audience who actually uses our product or service. They know what resonates with that audience because they are that audience. We have this amazing resource right at our fingertips, just waiting to be tapped into. This has been the All About the Customer podcast, brought to you by Influitive. I've been your host, Dan Calmore. Until next time, I know the view from the ivory tower might be pretty sweet, but we'd probably all be better served to come back to the ground. <laughs>